BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. So a couple of stories here that I just want to put on your radar, and then I'll pick up your phone calls. Over on Daily Co's Chaplain M., a fellow who is a, a chaplain in a hospital in, in Michigan, is writing just this heartbreaking uh, op-ed or, or diary, uh, I guess they're called diaries over at Daily Coast. He, he writes, just a quick update, because I can't bear to do much more. As a chaplain, I'm sorry, it's in Wisconsin. As a chaplain in a hospital in a small city in northeast Wisconsin, I find more daily heartbreak now than even in the previous months of the pandemic. The numbers are at least as high in our ICU and our general COVID unit. The difference is the ages of the people who are dying and those who are closest to them. And the, by the way, this is, this is what we're seeing with the Delta variant and with the Omicron variant, is that they are hitting young people. They, this is, COVID is no longer a disease, it's no longer the boomer remover. It's no longer a disease that attacks old people largely or ex, even exclusively. Uh, he goes on to say, last month we saw many people in their 40s dying, young adults in their late teens and 20s were their children, and seeing them try to figure out how to mourn was heart-wrenching. He said, this month seems to be bringing us the death of patients in their 30s. A couple of nights ago, a woman of 39 with two kids, ages five and nine, and a devastated husband, she, she died. My colleague who responded after midnight when she took a nosedive gave the kids prayer blankets and helped them gather up the drawings they made for their mom, which were taped up on the walls of her room. She was never aware of them in the last 10 to 14 days of her life though, because she was intubated, sedated, and paralyzed with medications. He offered the prayers her husband and family requested and went home to try to rest, but that was interrupted a few hours later by a call from our sister hospital where there were more deaths. Now I am watching the pain of a family whose beloved husband and son is only 34 years old and isn't going to live much longer, and that of a 31-year-old woman patient with three little kids and a very broken husband, parents, and best friend, keeping vigil as we allow them in one at a time to spend time with the beloved one wearing proper PPE, of course. It feels like a little taste of hell for them, I know, as well as for the poor, exhausted nurses and respiratory therapists. It feels like this will never end. I've loved working part-time, but I don't know if I'm up to the task of doing this for the long term. I don't know how our care team does it, with the physically challenging care, overtime, lack of breaks, and constant loss. Please hope and pray for an end to this horror show. We are wrecking our health care staff, and it doesn't have to happen. That's the hardest part, knowing that had these folks just chosen vaccination, their children would not be motherless and their young spouses would not be widowed. The world has gone wrong and sorrow is everywhere. You see, the chaplain writes, I'm fortunate that I only work three days a week, but it's still more than I can bear sometimes like today. A heartbreaking uh, uh, diary over at Daily Co's um, and, uh, and a really troubling one. And to that, uh, ap apropos of that, I also wanted to share with you uh, this, this piece from uh, the Straits Times. This is a newspaper out of Hong Kong, and it's about Singapore. And Singapore, I, I may have mentioned this yesterday. I don't recall if I mentioned it on the air, if I just was telling Sean and Nate about it. But in Singapore, if you show up now in the hospital any time after December 8th, which was yesterday, if you show up in a hospital with COVID and you need treatment and you have not been vaccinated, if you've chosen not to be vaccinated and you don't have a, 
a solid medical reason not to be vaccinated, you have to pay your own hospital bill out of pocket. And they're saying that the average is around $25,000. They have a national health care system, so health care is much less expensive in Singapore than here in the United States. But still, $25,000 out of pocket. Uh, they, they, the government says this is their position. They say in the midst of a pandemic that has killed so many people, choosing not to be vaccinated against COVID-19 when there are safe and effective vaccines has major implications for the health of others, especially vulnerable people who may not be able to get the vaccine themselves. Thus, there is an argument from a human rights perspective, says the government of Singapore, from a human rights perspective for the freedom from harm caused by others, an equivalent argument for why it is illegal to drink and drive. And this is the argument I've been making here in the United States that I, you know, I, the op-ed that I published a week or two ago, um, saying that it's time for us to, to, to simply mandate vaccines and say, if you don't want to, if you don't want to get vaccinated, you don't get to play. No more, no more theater, no more restaurants, no more bars, no more, you know, uh, shopping. You can, you can stay at home and order from Amazon if you want it, but uh, if you don't want to get vaccinated, you are on on, home, on house arrest, essentially, because there's, you're killing other people as well as yourself and your family. I mean, this is, you know, well over 90% of all the people in the hospitals and well over 95% of all the people all across the United States who are dying in our hospitals from COVID are unvaccinated. People in red counties, counties that voted for Donald Trump in the last election are six times, 600% more likely to die from COVID than people in blue counties that voted for Joe Biden. Why is that? Because people in blue counties are vaccinated and people in red counties are listening to Fox so-called news and Donald Trump and, and, and idiots, you know, former sportscaster, podcaster people and, and believing that somehow ivermectin is gonna save them and they don't need to be vaccinated. It is crazy. What do you think about all this? How, how do you think we should be dealing with this? It's the place where we dare to ask, is Walmart a person? And we dare to say, oh, not a chance. Come on, Supreme Court. John in Phoenix, Arizona. Hey, John, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, thank you so much for taking my call because, well, first of all, my parents live in Paris and my wife and I six months ago decided we we're going to go spend Christmas and visit them because the numbers are going down. Well, obviously, everything took a twist. So we canceled our flight yesterday. And that's when I felt very depressed because I had to cancel my flight, not because of me and my wife not being responsible. We're triple vaccinated and we wear a mask everywhere. I had to cancel my flight because of the anti-vaxxers. They're the ones that ruined my trip for me. And I am so angry that the people who are being vaccinated and wearing masks and doing our share to end this pandemic, we're being punished. And the non-vaccinated people, they're just living life like nothing's never happened. And it makes me so strong. And then another thing, and too. Well, they're, is, they're not just I'm, living life, John. They're, they're, they're flooding our hospitals to the point where, you, you, you know, surgeries are being postponed. People are showing up with heart attacks and things that aren't getting treated. People, people are discovering things that might be cancer, and they're not, and they're not being able to to get the kind of you know uh, examinations necessary, you know, uh, MRIs and things like. That. I mean, the hospitals are just clogged with these people. Yeah, you're you're exactly right. Um, I have a uh, first cousin; she's a physician in Denver. Um, and the, so, anyways, um, you know, so I canceled my international flight, and I got a refund on that because they were sending me travel warnings. But I called Southwest Airlines. Because we, we had to take a flight from, we, we were going to fly Phoenix to L.A. to catch our international flight. And Southwest goes, oh, we're not going to give you a refund. We're going to give you a voucher. We no longer honor the pandemic. And I'm like, well, you know what? Your CEO is a piece of crap. And, and, and she got <laughs> mad at me. And I said, well, I said, well, don't get mad at me. You're the, you just told me that you guys don't honor COVID. And I'm not canceling my flight to L.A. because I don't want to go surfing. This is an international flight. My point, Tom, is. Just the CEOs alone, other than United for domestic care, just the CEOs alone, if they would make a mandate where you have to be vaccinated to get on an airplane, we would probably reach herd immunity. You know, I don't understand why judges could be on the bench and they're trying to block Biden's vaccine. I mean, 
They're, they're, they're Trump-appointed judges, John. They, they, the, the, the whole Republican strategy right now is keep the pandemic going, keep people dying, keep the hospitals clogged up, keep people afraid to go shopping, keep them out of restaurants. That will depress the economy, and a depressed economy works to the disadvantage of the party in power. And right now, Democrats control the White House, the House, and the Senate. And therefore, if they can make this economy go in the tank, and they're doing absolutely everything they can to make that happen, including the budget re resolution yesterday that all the Republicans voted for that would have slashed Medicare. The, every Republican voted yesterday to slash Medicare. And, you know, th thankfully, the, the Democrats defeated that, that provision in the House of Representatives. But, I mean, you know, their strategy is just chaos, 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 and, and disrupt things and make it terrible so people will blame Democrats for this. And then, you know, we'll have a chance in the election in 2022 and 2024. It's, it's Tom, craven. Yeah. Yeah, Tom, and, well, you know, one thing I want to say is, you know, the funny part about all that is the Republican Party, they're killing their own base. I know, but, it, you know, the, 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 the math that they're doing they like that. is, it's only, well, it's only about a 1% death rate for people who get this, this virus. And okay. so, you know, if they lose one out of 100 voters, yeah, they can put up they with that. They don't care. Yeah, I, 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 you know, it's very clear. It's very clear. They don't care. Tucker Carlson doesn't care. Fox News doesn't care. Right wing media doesn't care. You know, yeah. So people are dying. That's that's the that's the cost. I mean, people die in wars, right? People die all the time. It, uh, it's it's just it's it's really tragic. It's really, really, Tom, really tragic. Can I please share what can I please say one more thing? And I'd please. like to get your opinion. Um, you know, I have a lot of family members that are frontline workers, along with a lot of people and the frontline workers. You know, I'm so angry that they're putting their lives in danger for all of this. But here's the catch-22. We all have to remember, it's all about the money. Follow the money. CEOs of hospitals, they love COVID because they're making bank, and they're not in danger because they're not, they're not actually. a frontline worker. They're not. You know, oh, they're COVID, not? No, COVID is not that profitable. And, uh, and also, because the hospitals are overrun with COVID, all the other things that can make bank for them, you know, people coming in okay. for spinal surgery or people coming in for cancer surgery or people coming in for, you know, uh, plastic surgery, uh, you know, whatever it may be, all that stuff is on hold. So the, 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 the really profitable stuff in the hospitals is down okay. right now. So, no, it's, it, it, this isn't okay, about Tom, the money, thank John. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much for clarifying that. That's why I listen to you, because you're my teacher. Okay. Um, Thank Anyways, you, Tom, my whole bottom line, the whole thing is, you know what, if if we would get vaccinated and reach herd immunity, the virus would be dead because it could no longer mutate. Yes, and that's why we need to vaccinate not only all of America, but all of the world. John, thank you. Thank you very much for the call. David in Detroit, Michigan. Hey, David, what's up? Yeah, hey, uh, yeah I'm calling from the Detroit area. Um, you know, there are a few things. One, I just, it, it just seems like on the left, we're not mobilizing well enough on the local level. Um, I'm not seeing enough involvement in, in local politics, you know, school boards, you know, community uh, boards, um, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. We're always looking for. Well, what's happening, actually, it's the other way around. It's, it's that the right is using the issues of race and and gender identity as, yeah. you know, as a lever to get their homophobic, racist people um, to, you know, into the party and into the school boards and into these local uh, situations. And on the Democratic side, there's not, you know, an outrage. There's not an anger, uh, right. although I think there will be once we see how these people, these uh, Republicans perform in these positions. Well, we've got someone over in New Hampshire right now trying to pass a bill, trying to promote a bill to prevent teaching of American history that doesn't make america look good right and it's not just new hampshire very by short. The way. i'm sorry what now it's not just in new hampshire but yeah i know what you're talking well, yeah, about yeah but i'm I, but yeah so it's like and then the the way the right recontextualizes things you know i was i was i was speaking about this bill on another show and the person lied the the, the show host lied to his listeners cut off the, the conversation and his attitude was well did they pass the bill yet and my response is, and this is for, for the listeners, we should not wait until it's too late to be outraged. Right. Right. You know, well, they, they have passed the bill in Texas. In I mean, they have passed well, bills like that in, in, in about a dozen states now, and maybe, maybe a few more. 
where you've got teachers who are afraid to teach American history right now, the actual history of the United States. They're afraid to teach that the South seceded because they wanted to defend slavery. They're afraid to teach that, you know, half the people at the at the Constitutional Convention were slaveholders. They're they're afraid to what teach. What do you suggest? Yeah, what do you suggest for people in those states? How do, how do these people... I think this is going to play out, David, the same way that creationism did. Uh, you may not be old enough to remember these debates back in the yeah, 70s. Um, but, you know, there was this whole right-wing uproar. This was when the, when the moral majority was just starting to feel its oats. And, and white, the white evangelical movement was becoming a political movement that was grounded in white power and, and, right. and, and religion. And, and they wanted the, the end of the teaching of evolution in our schools and the end of the teaching of sex education in our schools. And it was a so big think, deal. And, and it, so it, you think it, we ultimately played through it. You know, they, they had okay. their day for a few years and they had their whole, and then everybody just kind of looked at them and said, you guys are friggin' nuts. So you think this is gonna just burn itself out? I do. I, I just wanna make one more small comment. It was related to the mental health um, issue that you had the guest on about. Mm -hmm. um, I just want to remind callers, um, iron deficiency at early ages can lead to a lot of these uh, psychological symptoms, especially in the African-American community, it's three times more prevalent. So it's very important that, that um, you know, obviously you have to talk to a doctor about it, but make sure that children are getting the, the right amount of iron because yeah. an iron deficiency can be the silent that's like the silent one that sneaks by, and for years, you don't even know it. And okay. I, I was actually, I, I, I am no expert on that, David, but I do agree with you yeah. that uh, making sure that all of our children have good nutrition and, uh, you know, yeah. keeping the junk food out of their diets and making sure that they've got lots of fresh fruits and vegetables and, you know, nuts and grains Thank and you. things like yeah. that. Good stuff. Yeah. And, and you'll get plenty of iron if you're, you know, eating that way. And, and also, uh, if you're going to supplement, vitamin D is the one that, particularly if you live in the north, that you need to supplement. David, thank you for the call. It's the place where despair is not an option. No, we are not going to be paralyzed. We are going to remain active. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. On the line with us is Professor Richard Wolff, the economist, co-founder of democracyatwork.info, author of numerous books. His latest, The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself, now available as an e-book. Uh, you can tweet him at Prof. Wolf with two Fs on Twitter. And Professor Wolf, welcome back. I'm, I'm wondering if, uh, you know, I'm thinking back to 1979, 1980, when Jimmy Carter put Paul Volcker in charge of the Fed. Volcker uh, was a Democrat, actually. But nonetheless, he was, um, uh, shall we say, quite enthusiastic about slowing down the economy in order to stop inflation. 
and some argue that along with the uh, Iranian, you know, the students uh, holding the Iranian hostage crisis, that apparently Reagan had cut a deal with the Iranian mullahs around. Uh, those two things together doomed the Carter presidency. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of a, 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 an article of faith in politics and has been, I think, uh, repeated over and over for at least 100 years that in federal elections, whichever party uh, is in power, when the economy goes south, that party loses power. Do you think that the Fed chair that was just reappointed by President Biden, who is a Republican here and a former banker, um, you know, Jerome Powell, uh, do you think that he's going to, to repeat this little trick and push us into a recession just in time for the 2022 election? It sure looks like it from the reports that, uh, that we're all seeing. You know, it's also a classic move and it's something that people do all the time, Republicans and Democrats alike. It's what we teach in the university that I've spent my life being a professor in, in economics. And it goes like this. If you have an inflation, and if you have, if not zero unemployment, at least historically relatively low unemployment, and that's the situation we have now, well, then you are in a good position to do a classical move, namely uh, stop increasing the money supply, which the Fed has been doing, that is, they've been increasing it, and raise interest rates, which the Fed has been talking about. So because that's the classic recipe, uh, and because he's a Republican, and because he's conservative, uh, you put all that together, and yes, the betting is everywhere that they are going to stop increasing the money supply and begin to raise interest rates, uh, the so-called taper, as they often uh, call it. Uh, but I would like everyone to understand that we are an economy that's in serious trouble, and the policymakers... Republican, every bit as much as Democrat, are lurching around trying to cope, and they're not doing a very good job. It's terrible for Mr. Biden to be the president when there's an inflation, uh, just as it was terrible for Mr. Trump to be the president at a time when the economy collapsed, partly because of the pandemic and partly because of all that had happened in the years up to that. So n now we're going to see what? Rising interest rates. Well, let me tell you something. Unlike when Mr. Volcker came in, as you rightly pointed out, but unlike that, we are in a much more precarious situation. We have a stock market that is at record highs because people have been borrowing money at virtually zero interest rate and buying stocks uh, with that money. They have to pay that money back if the stock market goes down because they can't since interest rates are going up. We got a stock market crash coming that will be a doozy given what has gone on over the last five years. And the last point, we are more indebted as a country now. Government debt, corporate debt, and household debt, way more than what we had with Mr. Volcker, and therefore raising interest rate makes carrying all that debt much more expensive, and you're going to see all kinds of households and governments and corporations unable to handle rising interest rates. So we're going to lurch in that direction, but we may be lurching out of it as fast as we lurched into it, because the underlying reality is this is an economic system in very, very deep trouble, and denying it and lurching around from one policy to another is not going to stop that situation. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the House of Cards uh, scenario. Right. How much, how much power does Jerome Powell our current Fed chair, how much power does he have relative to the, the, the people who surround him? I mean, you've got the, the Fed Open Market Committee, you've got, which I believe is the principal uh, part of the Fed that sets interest rates, you've got the Fed representatives of the various Federal Reserve Banks, I believe there's 12 of them. Yep. Please bring me up to date on this. How, can, what can he do on his own versus for what does he have to forge a consensus? Well, there's the public story. You know, the country is divided into 12 Federal Reserve districts. There's a Federal Reserve Bank for each of these 12 parts of the United States, and the head of each of them sits on the board in Washington that is chaired by Mr. Powell. 
The truth is that what comes out of there depends on the complicated relationships among those individuals and the institutions that they represent. Publicly, they all have to vote, and he can push them in this way or that, but he has to basically get their vote, because if he didn't and tried to go off on his own, they could publicly embarrass him, create all kinds of speculation about there being a revolt among them, against him, all those kinds of things could really make it hard for them to carry out any kind of policy. But So usually, whoever's the chair tries to get if not unanimity, well then, a kind of consensus among the majority of the, of the 12 governors. Uh, but you're right, it's partly people who represent private banks, it's partly this semi-independent government. Uh, the reason we have this odd structure is because nobody trusts the private sector to print money, the way we once did in this country, because that got us into a mess full of corruption. So we turn to the government, but nobody really trusts the government either. So you want to make it very dependent on banks and very independent of Congress and so on. So it's in this sort of limbo, but it can tell you that these are very important matters and the Federal Reserve, which didn't prevent this inflation, the Federal Reserve, which didn't prevent the crashes of 2008 and 2020, for anyone to believe that they have this all under control, that we don't have to worry, they're going to do this thing, which is the logical thing to do. You have to be living in a very distant planet to believe that sort of thing. For the average person who's just, you know, catching the news here and there and, and maybe, uh, you know, reading one national media, you know, the New York Times, the Washington Post, Financial Times, something like that, um, what, uh, I'm assuming that the, that uh, Powell doesn't need a supermajority or consensus, that he just simply needs a simple majority uh, vote to, to change interest rates. If that's the case, what are the phrases that we should be looking for in media coverage um, that might seem obscure but actually signal which, which direction things are going. You mentioned, for example, the word tapering. Yes. Here's the thing. If interest rates are low and people are talking about, sorry, unemployment rates are low, and if people are talking about how low they are, that's a big fat hint that they feel comfortable about uh, doing something that might otherwise hurt employment. If you don't have much unemployment, well, then you can uh, raise interest rates. Uh, taper is itself a, a lovely word. It's a kind of um, half-baked admission that they've been pumping money into the economy to beat the band, and they're now going to taper off doing that. That is, injecting less money is now okay to do. They've been terribly afraid of doing that for fear that the stock market will crash if they do that, because that's what's kept the stock market up. All that empty money coming into the economy, not going into producing goods and services, because the American people can't afford to buy them, and therefore going into the stock market, bidding up those shares, which makes rich people who own the shares happy, but they're sitting on a credit bubble underneath, and nothing bursts a credit bubble like raising interest rates. So the more you hear that, oh, we don't have to worry about the stock market, or oh, we don't have to worry about employment, or oh, we're just tapering off, those are signs they're getting ready to do something extremely risky. Amazing. Professor Richard Wolf, democracyatwork.info, Prof Wolf with two Fs on uh, Twitter. Professor Wolf, thank you again for dropping by. Thank you, Tom. Great talking with you. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Richard Wolff's Understanding Socialism. This is from the introduction. Socialism is a kind of yearning for a better life than what capitalism permits for most people. Socialist yearnings are as old as capitalism itself because they are its products. Where and when capitalism's problems and failings have accumulated criticism and critics, socialist voices have arisen.
and so it is again now. Any serious discussion of socialism must begin by acknowledging socialism's rich diversity. Whatever particular aspect of socialism we choose to analyze, they need to be located within socialism's complexity. That avoids presenting one's own interpretation as if it were the entirety of socialism. In this book, I focus on the economic aspects of socialism, how it differs from capitalism in broad outlines. I'm more interested in socialist critiques of capitalism and their implications about socialist alternatives than in the particulars of the few early experiments in erecting socialist systems, USSR, People's Republic of China, and so on, that history so far offers. Finally, my own education and work constrain me to concentrate on Western Europe and North America. Some important aspects of socialism are thus not covered or discussed here. Yearnings for better lives, such as socialism proposes, are not new. In slave societies, the slaves hoped and dreamed of lives less hard and less out of their own control. Their yearning aimed to obtain freedom. They sought social change that would preclude any one person being the property of another. In feudal societies, the serfs, free in the sense that no one owned them, yearned for better lives too. Their subordination to lords included heavy labor and other burdens that they wanted lifted. They hoped and dreamed of a society in which they would not be bound to the land, the lord of that land, and the feudal dues of labor and subservience. The serfs, mobilized in the 1789 French Revolution to demand liberty, equality, and brotherhood. In effect, the serfs had expanded on what the slaves had called freedom. In the American Revolution against British King George III, the revolutionaries were neither slaves nor serfs. They were mostly self-employed farmers, craftspeople, and merchants subject to a foreign feudal kingdom. They wanted liberty as individuals to pursue their dreams without hindrance from feudalism or monarchism, whether foreign or domestic. They added democracy to the goals advanced by the slaves and serfs before them. The different systems of slavery, feudalism, and small-scale self-employment produce masses of people yearning for better lives. Eventually, each of those systems provoked revolutions. Many people then sought to break away from and go beyond those systems. The French and American revolutions marked key moments in the social transformations of major pre-capitalist systems into capitalist ones. By capitalist system, we mean that particular organization of production in which the basic human relation is employer-employee instead of master-slave, lord-serf, or individual self-employment. The revolutionaries who wanted and built capitalism hoped and believed the transition to employer-employee relations of production would bring with them the liberty, equality, brotherhood, and democracy they had yearned for. The revolution's leaders promised to themselves and to the people they led that those goals would be achieved. But the transition to capitalist employer-employee relations that increasingly replaced the previous slave, feudal, and self-employment relations of production had unintended consequences. Capitalism soon proved to be different from what its revolutionaries had hoped. While it enabled some people to be more free and more independent than slaves, serf, or self-employed subjects of monarchies had been, it also seriously limited freedom, independence, and democracy for many. Capitalism betrayed many of the promises made by its advocates. It produced and reproduced great inequalities of income and wealth. Poverty proved to be as endemic as capitalism seemed equally adept at producing and reproducing both wealth and poverty. The capitalist rich used their wealth to shape and control politics and culture. Democratic forms hid very undemocratic content. The cyclical instability attending capitalism constantly threatened and hurt large numbers of people, and so on. Growing numbers of employees within capitalism began to yearn for better lives. They defined those yearnings first in the familiar terms of the earlier French and American revolutions, equality, fraternity, liberty, and democracy. They criticized a capitalism that failed to deliver those to most people and demanded social changes to achieve them. Many people still continue to want a better, softer, friendlier capitalism, where government regulates and intervenes to achieve more of what the French and American revolutionaries had yearned for and promised. They are also often self-defined as socialists. However, capitalism's development provoked another different perspective that also called itself socialism. In that view, capitalism had not broken from slavery, feudalism, and monarchy nearly as much as its advocates had imagined. Slavery had master slaves, feudalism had lords serfs, and monarchy had king subjects as their key sources of their inequalities, lack of freedom, oppressions, and conflicts. 
employer-employee relation of production and capitalism generated parallel problems. Capitalism installed monarchies inside individual workplaces, even as monarchies outside workplaces were rejected. Kings mostly disappeared, but inside workplaces, the owners or their designated boards of directors assumed king-like powers. The book Understanding Socialism by Richard Wolff. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Welcome back. Time for three stories you must know. Number one, the Senate voted to repeal the Biden administration's vaccine and testing policy. Joe Biden, through the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA, uh, Joe Biden promulgated a rule, or the Biden administration put forward a rule saying that any company with more than 100 employees had to have all their employees vaccinated. Actually, any entity, which would include state governments. And you've got now four judges, one district court judge and three appeals court judges all at the same time. So it's basically two court rulings. But all four of these judges were Trump appointees. And all four of them have said, nope, you can't do that. So it's on hold right now. And every Republican in the Senate, this was led by Mike Braun, uh, the uh, Republican from Indiana, backed this piece of legislation, a law, that says you can't mandate vaccines, which is just insane, right? I mean, you know, for example, here's, here's how well vaccine mandates work. The Los Angeles School District, which has 73,000 employees, mandated vaccines. And the deadline was this week. And sure enough, this week they fired all of the employees who refused to get vaccinated. Out of the 73,000 employees of the Los Angeles school system, they had to fire 500 people, roughly. Actually, there's a little fewer than 500 people. Vaccine mandates work. It, here in the state of Oregon, we got 40,000 state employees, and we had to fire about two dozen because they wouldn't get vaccinated. I mean, this is just crazy. And by the way, Joe Manchin of West Virginia and John Tester of Montana, obviously responding to right-wingers in their own states. I get it. Uh, they, they voted, you know, against the administration and with all the Republicans. Okay, story number one. Story number two, Georgia Republicans passed this law, this uh, Senate Bill 202, which allows the Republican-controlled state election board to take control of county boards. It used to be County boards were answerable to voters in the counties. And so in largely black counties, for example, uh, to no one's surprise, mostly black people were running the county election boards because they lived in those counties. You want people who represent the neighborhood, who represent the community to be the people that you encounter when you go to vote. I remember, you know, I've told the story a million times. My mom was an election volunteer, and the, the elementary school was right down the street from our house. And I used to sit there when I was seven years old next to her while she checked people in to vote. And everybody knew everybody, right? We all lived in the same neighborhood. It's the way it should be. Well, what the Republicans have done in Georgia is they have said, no, we're going we're gonna to take these, we're going to take over these county election boards, which are filled with mostly black, mostly Democratic uh, folks, and we're going to replace them with exclusively white, exclusively Republican people who are going to decide who gets to vote and who doesn't, who gets a provisional ballot that may not be counted and who doesn't, and, and whether or not you know, the, uh, uh, the poll watchers 
from the Proud Boys can walk around with their machine guns or whatever. And, and this, by the way, this, uh, this is from Reuters. Protesters filled the meeting room of the Spalding County Board of Elections in October. A year ago, Sunday voting had been instrumental in boosting black voter turnout. But this was an entirely different five-member board that had overseen the last election. The Democratic majority of three black women was gone. So was the black elections supervisor. Now the faction of three white Republicans controlled the board thanks to a bill passed, blah de blah And uh, the Spalding Board's new chairman has endorsed Donald Trump's false stolen election claims on social media. It's nuts. Story number two. Story number three is Mark Meadows. Have you seen this thing, this document that he produced, this PowerPoint presentation that they were, that they were presenting to members, Republican members of Congress in preparation for January 6th? This is insane. I tweeted it out this morning. It's over at Scribd. And you can actually see, read the whole thing online. It's titled Election Fraud, Foreign Interference, and Options for January 6th. This is the chief of staff to the President of the United States and the former member of the Cokehead Caucus, also known as the Freedom Caucus, but I call them the Cokeheads because, you know, they're all funded by uh, organizations associated with the Koch brothers. Um, but uh, Mark Meadows. This is crazy. The talking points. It, it opens. It's titled January 5th, 2021. It titles opens talking points. The Chinese systematically gained control over our election system, constituting a national security emergency. Number one. Number two, the electronic voting machines were compromised and cannot be trusted to provide an accurate vote count. And hand counts reported by the media are not really hand counts and are easily subverted. Then, the, then they go to summary of domestic voter fraud. Occurred in eight contested states, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Georgia, Nevada, Arizona, and New Mexico. And what did they, what is he alleging that they found? Double votes, deceased voters, out-of-state and out-of-county voters, non-citizen or felon voters, fake ballots, ballot stuffing, and other illegal ballots in violation of state law. And then you go through this, and basically what they're doing is they're taking the, uh, the vote totals as they were coming in from people who actually showed up to physically vote, which was mostly Republicans because they were not afraid of the, of the pandemic, and, and noting that uh, Trump was ahead early on as the vote totals were coming in. And then when the mail-in ballots get dumped in, in, you know, in one giant pile into the, which was mostly Democrats, and we all knew this, we all knew this was coming. This was why Trump wanted to stop the count. Remember, I mean, you know, the night of the election, he was like, okay, let's stop the count right there because they hadn't yet added in all the mail-in ballots. It's why he put Louis DeJoy in charge of the post office to, start to you know, destroy over 200 high-speed sorting machines to slow down those mail-in ballots. They knew it was going to be Democrats. And so there's all these graphs showing, hey, look at this moment. Suddenly the Democratic vote picks up. Well, that's when the mail-in votes came in. So what does he con conclude from this key issue? China has leveraged financial, non-governmental, and foreign allies, including Venezuela, to acquire influence and control over U.S. voting infrastructure in at least 28 states. It is part of an ongoing globalist socialist uh, operation to subvert the will of the United States voters and install a China ally. That would be Joe Biden. They're, they're alleging he's a China ally. So what are they going to do? Brief senators and congressmen on foreign interference, declare a national emergency declare voting, uh, electronic voting in all states invalid. And then, and then for, at the very end, it says, Vice President seats Republican electors over the objections of Democrats in states where fraud occurred. In other words, steal the election. This is mind-boggling. Tom Harbin here with you on the line with us is my old buddy, Troy Miller. Troy was my, my collaborator in uh, most all of the Hidden History series of books, uh, editing my work and, and uh, pointing out when I was saying stupid things. <laughs> and, uh, and he now works with Social Security Works, socialsecurityworks.org. Alex's organization has been on this program many, many times as their West Virginia organizer. Uh, the, uh, his tw the Twitter handle is Troy N. Miller, 
And Troy also has a uh, Substack newsletter. Are you still doing that, Troy? I am. It's uh, blueridgebreakdown.substack.com. And it's, uh, you know, I'm just trying to put out as much as possible, but there's a. Uh, there's so much going on, there's only so much time to write, I, as, I totally uh, as you know. <laughs> I, I know it well, yeah, and, and I subscribe to Blue Ridge Breakdown. So, uh, West Virginia progressives are calling, you guys You guys are part of a campaign, and apparently you're using billboards to pressure Joe uh, Manchin. We're, we're uh, tell using me about a, this. A billboard trucks that we're sending around West Virginia for the next two weeks that are right now planned to be in Morgantown, Charleston, Wheeling, Martinsburg, Clarksburg, Parkersburg, and Huntington, but there's a lot of um, interest from other groups around the state who are saying, hey, you know, we'd love it if you can come here and we'd love to do a rally with you. So there's one rally that's definitely planned, and that's coming up this Thursday. I'll be there. That's in Morgantown at 243 High Street at the county courthouse. The billboard truck will be there as well. And, you know, we're, we're taking the issue directly to Joe Manchin here. And the, sim- the message is simple. You know, he says he supports lower drug prices. And... 90% of West Virginians are on a prescription medication or live with someone who is on a prescription medication. I don't see this as a progressive issue at all. I see this as very clear cut. You're on the side of pharmaceutical greed or you're on the side of West Virginians who are demanding lower and more reasonable drug prices. And, um, you know, the billboard says very simply, let me make sure I have the language right here. Senator Joe Manchin claims he supports lowering your drug prices. The Build Back Better Act allows Medicare to negotiate lower drug prices. Call Manchin at 304-342-5855 and tell him to vote for the bill now. And, you know, it's, it's very clear. I think this is one of these messages that once people hear it and know that this is in the bill, people overwhelmingly support it. And conservatives, independents, Democrats, Republicans, never Trumpers, pro-Trumpers, it is across the board an overwhelmingly popular thing to take on high drug prices and the pharmaceutical greed that is literally killing West Virginians and Americans all over the country. As you well know, we, uh, we have collaborated on this and researched this in both your Monopoly book, um, the story of Alec Rayshon Smith, who died after he rationed his insulin, and um, in the healthcare book quite extensively. Yeah. So I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but maybe your listeners, um, maybe there's a few in West Virginia, and if there are, I encourage you at the top of the hour here after this conversation to pick up the phone and call Joe Manchin at that number again. And, uh, you know, this issue, there, it, 25% of West Virginians, one out of every four West Virginian is, uh, West Virginian is on Medicare. And we have 35,000 kids who are being raised as their grandparents, as their primary caregivers. That's about 8% of all West Virginian children. You take a classroom of 25 kids, two of them are going to probably be, be, are probably being raised in a household where their grandparents are their primary caregivers. 31% of West Virginian voters, according to exit polls in 2020, are over 65. Another 35%, according to that, is are, are over 45. So this is an issue that is going to, right now, improve the lives of voters, improve the lives of those kids who are um, in, at best, those two grandparents have paid in Social Security for their entire lives. At best, they have pensions and they own their own home and they're on Medicare. And they are seeing their drug prices go up year after year. The price of insulin has tripled over the last decade. In West Virginia, between 1991 and 2014, uh, the average rate of, uh, of spending per capita on pharmaceutical drugs and pharmaceutical medications went up 6.8% every year. People are upset about inflation at, six point, at 6.2 or whatnot at the end of October. Well, this has been going on for decades, and people are losing money on it and are making tough decisions between whether to heat their home for the holidays or whether to ration their drugs that they need or whether to skip the doses entirely. This is, this is to me, a no-brainer issue that is very clear. You're either on the side of more pharma greed and more executive payoffs and more lobbyists to be hired to tell us that this is impossible, or you're on the side of West Virginians who need more affordable drugs right now. So if people want to learn more about what you're doing there in West Virginia, go to socialsecurityworks.org? 
socialsecurityworks.org. Um, on Twitter, you can uh, DM me or reach out to me at, at Troy Ann Miller. Um, we are going to be all over the state for the next two weeks. We're organizing with lots of great groups around here. The Working Families Party in West Virginia is going to be helping us out a lot. And uh, what, the what? People's Campaign also. We are... This is a real mobilization effort, and you know Joe Manchin needs to hear this. What is the state of progressive politics in West Virginia, uh, Troy Miller? We have a little less than a minute. Um, I'm, you know, in, in a cup for a conversation that could take up a whole hour. Um, I am optimistic. I believe that the state of progressive politics is is positive here. We, you know, this is a state that went all 55 counties for Bernie in the primary in 2016. The messages clearly resonate. And if we can get past the stigma of, you know, socialism and all the BS that we hear on the national media, when you take the issues directly to people, in my personal experience, and I believe polling shows this too, people overwhelmingly agree with us on on this issue and so many others. Yeah. Yeah, it it, it 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 seems like that's got to be the. I mean, you know, I, I just keep remembering, you know, the Bernie carried every single county in West Virginia in the in the primary. It's and people think West Virginia is a very red state, but that happened in the last ten years. Yep. And uh, so we can turn this around. I'm yeah. optimistic. For I'm one. with you. Thank so, you so much for the time, Tom. Sure enough, Troy. Troy Miller. Uh, his Twitter handle is Troy N. Miller and uh, socialsecurityworks.org is the website. Uh, We'll be back with more of the Tom Hartman program right after this break. Stick around. It's going to get interesting. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Elon Musk. Now, let's just be very, very clear. Elon Musk built a battery factory in Nevada with hundreds of millions of dollars of taxpayer subsidies and uh, tax abatements, property tax abatements. He got $20 million in subsidies for a SpaceX launch tower that he's building in Texas. Every Tesla car that was sold from 2008 until until last year came with a government subsidy. SpaceX, his space company, Elon Musk's space company, was one of 67 space companies that together received $7.2 billion in government funding over the last 18 years. His company, Tesla, was built on a government loan that had they not received it when they received it, would not exist. Without government funding and subsidies, there would be no Tesla. The same is true of SpaceX and of Starlink, his uh, space-based internet service. They're they're sucking on the government trough. Mark Sumner writing about this over at Daily Kos. And uh, yesterday, he uh, showed up at the Wall Street Journal CEO Summit and offered his opinions. Now, keep in mind, this is the guy whose company only exists because of government subsidies. His Aerospace company only exists because of government subsidies. His car company only exists because of government subsidies. Government subsidies made, you know, created the ground on which Elon Musk became a billionaire. And so he came out yesterday and said he's opposed to all government subsidies. It's time to end them all. There's an old uh, uh, phrase for this. It's called pulling up the ladder. Uh, cha... Uh, Oh, I'm, I'm ja, Ha Jun Chang is his name. He's the British economist. He's been on this program. He wrote a, a book called Pulling Up the Ladder. And uh, this was maybe a decade or so ago. He was on the show probably five years ago. A brilliant, brilliant guy. And his book was about how this happened in South Korea. The same thing. You get, you get all these industrialists who took money from the government to build their industries and then said, okay, no more government money. 
In other words, they're, they're, they're trying to pull up the ladder. And the same thing with people who, you know, climbed into the middle class or climbed into the upper middle class and then say, oh, yeah, no more welfare money for people at the bottom. You know, I've got mine. And it's a syndrome. It's a psychological illness. You know, I've got mine, screw everybody else. That, that's, that is their mantra. And now that Elon Musk is a billionaire, he is, he is singing that song too. And I think it's just pathetic doesn't quite do it, do it justice. Anyhow, picking up your phone calls, Bob in Farnham, Virginia. Hey, Bob, what's up? I, I think we're all, you know, kind of flabbergasted by the Republicans obstruction simply for obstruction's sake. Yeah. Um, but we also see the authoritarian uh, pushes all around the globe. And I just wonder how much of a hack, happy accident it might be that we have no ambassadors um, and that they won't affirm um, ambassadors to our native our NATO allies. Right. Ted Cruz is blocking it, it most of them. Weakens us everywhere. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree. And this planned. is they're just trying to sabotage the Biden administration. It's just that simple. And I guarantee yep, you that there I, will never you know, if 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 an opening becomes available on the Supreme Court, uh, the Republicans will do everything they can to to block any kind of an appointment, just like they did with Merrick Garland. They're not going to let another. They're not. They're not going to ever let a Democratic president have a Supreme Court nominee if they have any say over that matter. Right, but w- with the buildup of troops on the on uh, the border, uh, Russian troops on the border of Crimea, it, it just all falls into place. Everything from sanctions against Russia coming out of their Republican platform in twenty six. I mean. It, the whole thing, it's just... It Trump looks was like an agent of Russia. Coordinated. Huh? Trump was an agent of Russia. Trump, Trump has been taking money from Russian organized criminals and Russian oligarchs for decades. I mean, he's completely well, in the pocket of the Russian oligarchs. And, and you know, the Russian I, government would be crazy not to take advantage of that. And they did. Right. And, and when you look back and you remember the uh, Republican senators celebrating Fourth of July over there, I think this is all part of the plan. You know, they're they're happy to see the the um, dissension within our country where we're a, right. a a weaker entity. They are thinking way, the enemy but, of my um, enemy is my friend, and and uh, yeah, I'm with you. Yep. Anyway, let's hope for the best. Yeah, well, let's work for the best, Bob. Uh, you know, <laughs> that's the, the critical effort. But I, 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 I get what you're saying. I totally get what you're saying. We're kind of working through this. Uh, you know, what do we do? How do you treat? How do you deal with these bullies? How do you think the elections are going to be playing out in 2022 and 2024? What can you do on the ground to influence things? We'll continue these conversations in a moment. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Call 202-808-9925. And have you gotten boosted yet? Get out there and get your booster. Seriously. Now, today. Jim in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Hey, Jim, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. Uh, happy holidays to you and your family. Thank you. I need you to talk me off the ledge here. I'm really getting down about these elections, how to, uh, uh, with the gerrymandering and dumping votes and ballots, and if and if they don't win, they can just uh, pop their guy in there. Um, well, let me say, I'm still going to vote. I voted since 1976 for all the uh, for all the elections, judges, DA, aldermen. But I've seen over the years how they've packed the courts with these judges and that because they knew everything they did was going to go into the courts, and this way they could manipulate it. Now, how do we? The Democrats, uh, well, they're all millionaires too. So Trump did them a favor with his tax breaks and everything, they always say... The Democrats are not supportive of that, though. Trump didn't get a single Democratic vote for his tax cuts for billionaires. I understand that, but they still benefited from those tax cuts. 
so they weren't going to oppose it. Well, actually, they did oppose it. They actively opposed them, and then they spoke out against them. Jim, you know, it's, it's kind of a good news and bad news story. I mean, the, the, the bad news is that the Republicans have figured out that they represent a minority position in America and a, and a shrinking minority position in America. And so the only way that they can hold power, seize power, continue to hold power is by rigging the system. And they've been doing that through the courts and they've been doing that through gerrymandering. And now, you know, with the 2024 election coming up, they're trying to do that with the House of Representatives. I get that. It's, but that's, right. that's also the good news. Again, the Republicans represent a small and dwindling minority view in America. They have, there, are, there is a, a small collection of right-wing billionaires, very wealthy people and corporate CEOs who for the last 50 years are, have been opposed to the idea of democracy. They don't, they, can, they, they call openly, they, many of these people will call democracy mob rule and say, no, no, we're a republic, not a democracy. We're supposed to, you know, it's a, and they are the ones who have helped organize this rigging of the courts and, and put up these, you know, these groups that, that you know, uh, promote right-wing judges and things like that. They're the ones who've been supporting the politicians who do it. And I don't know what we can do about them specifically, um, or, or for that matter, even should, but the, the impact of their money and politics has been terrible. And I think that increasingly Americans are waking up to that. I mean, you know, you, you do polling, and even Republicans, more than half of Republicans, will tell you that money in politics is a bad thing. So, even if we win by 10 million votes, they can say, well, we don't like that guy. We're going to put our guy in there. That's what gets me is yeah. it's, uh, the vote is almost meaningless now. What are elections for but just to show the Democrats aren't, are, don't seem to be fighting that hard for it? I think they, they are. they got no backbone. I think, I think they are. I'm, and, not, and, seeing it. And, I'm not seeing it, Tom. Sorry. Yeah. I need, to get, I need to get Jamie Harrison on this show. You know, we used to, Tom Perez used to drop by all the time. In fact, he used to reach out to us constantly. Uh, we very rarely reach out to guests. We usually, we're, we're more reactive than proactive. But I think we need to proactively reach out to Jamie Harrison and see if he's willing to come on the program and tell us what the Democrats are up to. Because there's some actually really good stuff going on out there, Jim. Um, go to Democrats.org and sign up. Just at least get, get on their mailing list. I, I think you'll find there's some, some, some things to be very optimistic about. Jim, thanks a lot for the call. And thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.